This is your host, Donna Barr, and welcome to A Bazillion Ghost Stories. Here we are at the 13th episode, and I hope this is going to be good luck spooky. You don't have to be dead to be invisible. I have witnessed what the in-laws and friends of the Macaw have told me, that they can be invisible standing right next to you or standing behind you. I was at a town council meeting once, and we were talking about the fact that the bank had just closed, and we needed a bank for loans. And I was at the end of the table, and there was nobody beside me. And we had been talking about how we need to get the tribes involved. And somebody had made the suggestions, well, maybe we better send them a basket of muffins. I think they'd been watching Friends. And all of a sudden, from my left, I had not heard anybody come into the building. Somebody said, we want a bank too. And I whipped around and looked, and there was a council member from Nia Bay. This kind of annoys people who are not ready for it because people's uncles and aunts can be right there watching nonsense they're pulling and they don't see them. And they don't even have to be told, you wait till your uncle finds out about this because there they are. And the reason I'm talking about people being invisible is once the Macaw Bay Tribal Council saved our library. We had a small one-room extension of the North Olympic Library System in Clallam Bay, and it was always very crowded and overloaded. So the friends of the Clallam Bay Library had been putting together funds, and they were going to be matched by the main library. Well, there was a new administrator in the main library, and like a lot of these project guys, he was trying to take that money and attach it to one of his own projects. So he was invited by one of our librarians, who you do not really want to mess with. You better not try banning any of their books. He was invited up, and with him came the new county commissioner, who wanted to come out and see what was going on locally. So we were all having a meeting down at the Clallam Bay Library. And things have been going on for a while, and I was sitting across the table from the door, and there had been no one come in, and nobody I saw, and all of a sudden our librarian said, after this administrator had been going on about how the money was needed for his project, and he wasn't being that polite about it, and the commissioner was just kind of watching, and the librarian said, I'd like to welcome a member of the Nia Bay Council from the Macaw. And we all did a double take. And your brain kind of remembers how long one of these people had been standing there. He had probably been standing there behind the administrator and the commissioner for like seven minutes. They had dissed a tribal council member for seven minutes. That's a long time. And they both turned around with looks of shock on their faces. And that administrator looked a little guilt. Guilty, I should say. I don't even know why I cut that unless I want to make it like he looked a little guilt. 
And when you consider that's a Yiddish word for money, it looked a little guilt, which he, which he was trying to get. Now, the council member was wearing jeans and a t-shirt, the usual thing, but he was also dressed in the colors red, white, and black, which are the tribal colors. And we basically all thought, uh-oh, he's come with the war paint on, he ain't gonna mess around. He is standing there with his arms folded. Very, very emotionless face. And he started doing what is called native speak. We've all heard it in the movies. I am here to listen to what you have to say. He's doing this. Now, Makado would speak like this. We are all just dying because the two outsiders don't know any better and they're scared. They know there's monkey business going on and they're automatically afraid of the tribe because the tribe's got some power. And of course, all the fear they've got in their little heads from watching old movies, they hear this voice and they know there's nothing they can do about it. And at the end of it, the council members said, I kid you not, I have heard your words, and I will take them to my council. We're just dying. Let me just say that the administrator gave up, and we got to keep the money, and a nice new extension was built onto our local library, and we have scanners and a lot more computers, and it's way nicer and real nice bathrooms. And the commissioner at the time learned where the real power base was, and you don't want to be messing with the tribe. Because they can be invisible when they want to be. And they might be standing behind you. As promised in the program notes, I am going to talk about several cryptoid mysteries that have come up on the mor morbid, let's say it right, true crime podcast. And I'm going to start off with Edinburgh Castle. And one of the things they were talking about was the Edinburgh Castle pet graveyard. Now, I've seen this thing. It's got its own tiny little wall outside, little round wall outside of the actual castle wall with the dirt inside that like it's a little bird's nest on the side of the wall. And in it are the castle pets. And they say it's only dogs that belong to soldiers and other people who, who worked and lived there. But I assume there are probably some cats in there because, of course, you can't have a castle without cats because they have rats and mice. And the headstones are tiny, round headstones like humans get. They're adorable. Uh, but it's up there on the wall of the castle. And the morbid crew mentioned that one of the things seen at the castle was a black dog. So they assumed that that would be one of the pets. But I think we all know that Scotland and Ireland and Northern England all have the black dog. It's where Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got the Hound of the Baskervilles from. In fact, they have these odd names, one of which is Stryker. And when I told my neighbor that her nice little light milk chocolate Labrador, who loves to swim and is the sweetest dog in the world, that naming her Stryker, or whoever named her Stryker, uh, re releases, reverts, I can't even think of the word right now, refers back to the black dogs of 
the British Isles, and she thought that was spooky and fun. But if Edinburgh Castle has got a black dog, I'll bet that thing has been there a lot longer than any castle or hill fort. My dear friend and colleague Roberta Gregory and I do a lot of signing tours together, and one of them was in Edinburgh, and we stayed at a fan's house, and I can't remember if it was one of her fans or one of mine. I think it was one of hers, and this guy had a typical British Isles bachelor apartment. There was a million teacups all over the place, like tea mugs, and he had... Uh, futons on the floor or mattresses rather for sleeping on and it was a couple of bedrooms and Roberta at one point she went and used the one mattress and I used the other mattress in the other room I think he was out clubbing or something because that's the club culture up there and that's what they do all night and he was uh, putting up a bunch of friends there young people from Ireland and Scotland and I'll tell you something when it comes to sleeping in Edinburgh you get some real strange dreams. You get these cavern dreams. You get dreams of stalking creatures. You get these strange circular designs. But I realized later on that these very, very specific dreams I had, and I don't know if this is anything that might have had me have to do with dreams people have had in the past or what they're taking, but at one point, Roberta threw all these chatty kids out of her room, ended up in my room, and I'm an insomniac anyway, and of course they were smoking pot. So I figure a lot of these Edinburgh ghosts that I saw in this particular area had more to do with the devil's lettuce than it had to do with any stalking demons or ghosts. Morbid also had a Spooky Castles episode in which they talked about a castle that was so run down and so vandalized that people would break through the floors and fall. And that just reminds me of a story once when Dan and I were renting an apartment while I was going to school in Columbus, Ohio. We had a gray cat named Zyda, which means silk in German, and she was our first cat. And he was sitting in the bathroom, and she came into the bathroom, and she looked up at the ceiling and suddenly skipped out of the bathroom on her hind legs, and he looked up, and the ceiling collapsed on him. So, just a personal note, but always funny to have cats. Another castle the Morbid Crew describes is an Eastern European castle that supposedly had a very deep pit walled under it. They know where this castle is. It's in Czechoslovakia or someplace like this. I always forget to look at their program notes. I'm just talking. But at one point, back in, it said the 1300s, one of the lords of the castle lowered somebody down into that hole before they walled it up and, and put a floor over it. And the guy they lowered down screamed all the way down and screamed all the way back. And he said that down there he had seen half-human and half-beast creatures and I'm wondering if this castle, which in modern parlance was said to be full of devils, which is Christian for earlier gods, earlier sacred places, it always is, 
I wonder if somebody might be hiding some cave paintings they should probably investigate under there. Now we're really going to get into a terrifying cryptid that the Morbid Girls uh, described, or rather one of their listeners described. Uh, down south, they have got this monster that she first saw, the girls saw. Uh, it had two red eyes looking at her in the dark, and they were down low. And she ran, and she was pursued by something that was as tall as she was at the shoulder, had black hair, pointy ears, a huge grin, and when everybody went to look later, it had left the hoof prints of a huge hog. And then, when she got back to her house, the thing looked in the window at her, and then left. Now, evidently, everybody around this town knows what this thing is. They give it a name. It's uh, the local monster. And I was listening to this and I remembered something from earlier episodes about hunters who wanted to blow up their ego more than they usually do. And they had evidently paid farmers in the southeast to raise up huge domestic hogs for them to later hunt because wild boars, even the toughest uh, wild boars living in our country where there's more food, they don't get that big. They might get as, you know, halfway as tall as a human. They're not monsters. But if you feed a domestic pig, that thing can go up a couple thousand pounds. They get huge. Now, the description of this thing, pointed ears, big grinning teeth, low red eyes, about her height, black shaggy hair like what domestic uh, pigs can grow. They can grow it like the wild boar, black shaggy, shaggy smooth hair, and the big pig feet. Uh, I'm wondering if this poor domestic hog left out there for some hunter to kill and who was used to having his dinner brought to him saw a human and ran after her and then look in the window because he just wanted to be fed. Oh, and the hunting thing was not in any of the episodes. Those were earlier news reports. I've seen a uh, film of this, and uh, the people who were doing it with his hogs were completely ridiculed. I'll admit that the European domestic wild hog, a rather feral hog, can be a real problem in this country. Another reason that I thought this so-called monster might just be an animal is because the Chinese, and you could practically hear them giggling, put out in their news reports um, about, I think, 15 years ago, and they described a creature that had a head like a pig and a back like a horse and had elephant feet, blah, 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 and then they started telling the color of it, and I knew what it was immediately. It was an Asian taper, and really, if you describe a lot of animals on this planet and you're not used to them, then you can come up with all kinds of strange ideas what they look like. So because this particular cryptid, this hog cryptid, was seen by so many people, there were footprints and the way it acted, um, I think that the pig just wanted to be fed. Dan and I went for our beach walk and we were talking about hogs and legends in people's families, including some near and dear, 
about babies or young children that were eaten by hogs. And I think we all remember that moment in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy falls into the pig pen and everybody is terrified that she is going to be eaten. Uh, a pig will attack a an adult, especially if she is defending her young. That is a domestic pig. Um, but if you're small enough, they'll just eat you. They'll they anything that falls into their their area is food. But there's something that we also were talking about that most species will not eat what they didn't get to eat as babies. Now. Pigs are like humans. We may be less picky about that. But on the other hand, even omnivorous humans won't eat everything. I mean, how many of you will eat insects? A lot of people do in the world, but a lot of people, because they didn't get raised with them, don't eat them. Sharks don't attack people like they used to, because we're not throwing enslaved people and dead sailors into the water for them to learn to eat as babies. So we were wondering about these stories about pigs readily eating young children or babies. And then we realized, well, if you're on a farm and you don't want that extra kid uh, or you don't want to have any kid at all and you just want to get rid of him or her, uh, a good excuse would be, oh, must have got out in the pig pen. Although some of these stories don't involve young children, they involve infants. And how many infants you know that are crawling out of their crib and out the window and getting out and dropping into the pig pen and oops, all of a sudden disappearing and getting gobbled up. So you might want to wonder, uh, pigs eating babies, that might not been about what a pig will eat so much as, uh, uh, this was pre Roe versus Wade. I need a few extra minutes on the podcast to make it to 20 minutes. That's the best I can do. And one of my Facebook friends noting that I had done the giant hog drawing said that that was like Richard III's arms his heraldic symbol. And I said, that's true. She says, are you going to talk about him? And I says, well, I wasn't planning to, but why not? Uh, when Richard III's body was found, it was seen that he did have scoliosis. And people were still wondering how what had originally been defined as a hunchback was affecting him. Uh, look up Dominic Schmee, who was a young man who had the same scoliosis problem. It's quite severe, but learn to ride a war horse, wear armor, uh, use weapons quite, uh, quite well, and actually charge down the hill that Richard charged down. So I was walking along the beach one day and I thought, well, you know, what if Richard switched in and out of this young man's body and temporarily became him whenever he was playing Richard III? And I thought, I we do know from Richard's uh, records that as a king, he was eating quite a rich diet, including a lot of wine. But there was one thing he would not have gotten to drink that all monarchs after a certain period were drinking, uh, and that was caffeinated drinks. And a lot of English people, of course, drink tea. So all I can think of is Dominic Schmee 
taking a big mouthful of tea right before Richard slides into place and Richard gagging and spitting it out and saying, what in the Virgin's name is this? So there's my imaginary what-if ghost story about Richard III at the request of a Facebook friend. Before you leave, if you want to get this podcast a few days early, join me at patreon.com slash Donna Barr. And if you want to find more about what's going on in my world, just look for DonnaBar.com, where I've got links to everything. Bye! A spooky...